Welcome to FRT, the IF podcast on the intersection of finance, regulation and technology. And a happy new year and welcome for episode 57, our first episode of 2020. I'm Brad Carr, this time back in the IF offices in Washington, and I'm joined today by Linda Jeng. Linda is now a visiting scholar on financial technology at the Institute of International Economic Law here in Georgetown. She was previously the Chief of Staff for Risk Surveillance and Data at the Fed, also leading a bail work stream, which we're going to talk about today. Linda, thank you for joining us and welcome to FRT. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for having me. Linda, we're going to discuss the recent Bail Committee report, a report that you led on open banking and application programming interfaces, APIs, published in November. Can we start with the background of this report? perhaps the rationale and the genesis of how it came about? I'd be happy to. So I'm no longer with the Fed, and so I'm not speaking on behalf of the Fed or the Basel Committee. But you can speak much more freely as a result. (laughs) That's correct. And so I had the privilege of chairing the work stream at the Basel Committee on open banking and APIs. And the work I thought was instrumental in not only informing Basel Committee members and its supervisory membership about open banking, but it was also, I think, helpful for the banking industry as well in being able to see how is open banking developing around the world. So the Basel Committee decided to do this deep dive because back in 2018, it issued its first sound practices paper on the implications of fintech. And after publishing that paper, the committee decided it wanted to do deep dives on specific topics, beginning with open banking and what are the issues around accessing customer data. So open banking as defined by the Basel Committee, is the sharing of customer permission data by banks with third parties and firms to develop new products and services that customers want. And so this is essentially a transformational movement in banking from traditional banking to not only open banking, but open finance. Interesting that the FCA in the UK recently published a consultation document on open finance and the Australian initiative around the consumer data right that perhaps sees this extending beyond just the scope of banking. Yes, it is so much more than even open finance. I think one day we will all be living in an open data ecosystem and we'll look at open banking as just simply banking. What's particularly interesting about open banking is it was pushed often by competition authorities in many jurisdictions. And so a lot of the frameworks that are being implemented were actually pushed by government agencies that were not bank supervisors. So Basel committee members saw a need to actually get caught up and understand better what does open banking mean and what does it mean for our supervised banks. And if I can jump in there, look, I think what you've just described really cuts to one of the really interesting policy challenges in the, the new digital world that you have historically, you've had very clear delineations around a banking supervisor and insurance and security supervisors. But now it's much more about this complex matrix or complex labyrinth of not only them, but the competition supervisor or the data commissioner or the privacy commissioner and kind of grappling with the intersection of a lot of those different mandates, right? Yes. A key challenge for bank supervisors that the committee found 
was that there will be a need for greater regulatory coordination because it's no longer just bank supervisors um, that are involved with the safety and soundness of banks, but also competition authorities and data protection authorities, consumer protection, the list goes on. And so the interesting feature of open banking is it's multifaceted. It is truly a cross-disciplinary activity that requires a much more comprehensive look at what does sharing of data mean for banks, but also what does data sharing mean for customers and the economy as a whole. Absolutely. And, and I think it's it's a great initiative that the Bowl Committee and supervisors and indeed ex-supervisors like yourself focused on this. It's a very topical issue. It's been very central to our board meetings at the IF and in our recent annual membership meeting. I think if we turn to the report itself, and you know, I think it analyzes a lot of the key risks that banking supervisors are focusing on as open banking emerges in various jurisdictions, what would you highlight as some of the key findings and perhaps the key learnings for those banking supervisors? So a very interesting finding was that nearly all the jurisdictions we surveyed, and there were 25 of them in the Basel Committee, reported back that they have adopted some form of open banking framework. These frameworks vary in scope, also in approach. And we found there were primarily three categories of open banking frameworks. There's the prescriptive framework, such as in the EU and India and Mexico, where banks are required by law to share customer permission data with third parties. Then there's the facilitative approach, which you can see in Hong Kong and Singapore, where the government is not requiring banks to share, but they're encouraging it. They're coming out with suggested open API standards and other best practices. The final approach has been the market-driven approach, where there is no explicit rules or requirements, such as in the U.S. and China. And in these jurisdictions, you actually see a lot of open banking activity. They may not necessarily call it open banking, but it really is. Banks are being requested by their customers to share data with data aggregators and other third parties. So my sense is that screen scraping as a mechanism has been more common here in the US than in other markets. And there are cases where that's created some tensions between the banks and some of the new providers. Can you give us any examples or any reflections on those? Yes, uh, screen scraping is still the dominant way to share customer permission data. But just recently, for example, uh, a month ago, PNC blocked access to Plaid. So customers couldn't use Venmo. PNC was flooded with customer complaints. And its response was, well, go use Zelle, which is the bank-sponsored peer-to-peer payment system. I find this example quite interesting because Zelle is also vulnerable to hacks and may not be any more secure than, say, a data aggregator-powered service such as Vemo. But it does show that banks recognize their customer data is quite valuable and they probably want to have some control over that data. Also, perhaps they want to have more power to ensure the security of the data of their customers. There are multiple factors involved here, but I thought it was a fascinating example and very recent one at that. And then only a couple of weeks ago, JP Morgan signed an agreement with Investnet Yodley. I thought that was a very big step in showing how data aggregators can partner with banks that will allow customers more power to control what data can be accessed, 
who can access the data and for how long. That I thought was a very interesting and exciting development. We hear a lot of banks talk about the fact that the, the trust of their customers is their number one asset and the importance of protecting that. And in a data economy, you know, it naturally manifests itself in the form you mentioned of wanting to ensure they protect the data of their customers. I thought it was a fascinating chart in the Bank of England's Future of Finance report where they track you know, citizens had been, been uh, questioned, you know, who do you most trust with your data? And it was like about 90% or 94% that had picked out banks and, and a smattering of 6% across other parts. So you know, to your point, banks recognise the value of the data, but they also recognise, I think, the obligation that they have in protecting the value that that data has to the individuals as well. Yes, banks are very much historically been considered stewards of their customers' data. And I think they take that responsibility very seriously. And bank supervisors expect their supervised banks to take that responsibility seriously. One big issue in open banking is on security. And I thought the report was particularly strong in addressing the inherent risks in screen scraping, for instance, and I guess the relative superiority of APIs as an approach. Can you elaborate a bit more on that? So the mandate of the Basel Committee is the safety and soundness of banking institutions, along with the stability of the financial system. So we focused on that particular area of open banking. And that meant where are the potential vulnerabilities in open banking for supervised banks? And that would be namely cybersecurity. Open banking increases the fabric of targets for cybersecurity attacks. And so it's no longer just the banks that are holding information that could be targeted. It would also be the third parties themselves. So we looked at what are the vulnerabilities? And one is, you know, the practice of screen scraping currently involves the storing of customer login credentials by third parties, such as data aggregators. So that means if a data aggregator were hacked, then those login credentials could be stolen or lost. And then another area could also even be APIs. So it was found that APIs using tokenized methods to authenticate customers could be perhaps more secure than, say, screen scraping, but not all APIs are created equal. And so APIs themselves could also be subject to cybersecurity risks. So we didn't spend as much time in this report on, you know, which API standards are better than others, but we shouldn't assume that, you know, all APIs are equally strong in data protection and also shouldn't necessarily assume that all screen scraping methods are equally vulnerable because perhaps screen scraping could be adapted in ways that could be more secure than currently used. Can we take that point about standardization and I guess the variances of APIs, but the potential for standardization, can we take that a bit further and, and maybe also from another angle? The general uptake of, of open banking so far has been pretty slow. You know, the UK, I think, was the earliest to adopt, but it's still been very slow even there. And one item that's often cited is the, I guess, the proliferation of so many different types of APIs that if you're a fintech firm, then perhaps you've got to be able to connect to all sorts of different APIs from different banks. Or conversely, from the other side, the banks have all these differing fintechs wanting to connect to them in different ways. And it sometimes raises a question of, do we need to gravitate more towards a singular or more common standard for APIs? And would that help some of the uptake? But of course, at the same time, that raises a question of, should policy be mandating a particular type of API? Or, or should rather policy maintain a sense of being technology neutral should it be for the market over time to evolve perhaps towards a chosen standard? Realising that it's, it's early days in a lot of that evolution, but interested in any thoughts you have on that? 
Sure. So I cannot opine upon how the Basel Committee will land on this issue, but at least factually, we can see that there are different API standards being developed regionally. And so we're seeing in the survey that there's a standard being developed in the U.S. with um, the financial data exchange. There are standards being developed in the EU with the Berlin Group and also with the U.K. Open Banking Standard. And the French are also developing one as well. China has their own. Japan is also putting together its own standard for its banks. Hong Kong, Singapore are pushing forward standards that they think would be best for their banks. And so in the end, you start wondering if there could be fragmentation of the banking industry. I think an area where open banking could be made more efficient would be to improve the interoperability. So perhaps these standards don't need to be all the same standards, but if they can be interoperable. Some regulators do not believe in mandating technological standards for banks. And certainly in the U.S., there's a preference to let the market decide where things should go and what standards should be adopted. But at least economically, you can see there's a strong rationale for, if not a universal standard, then at least um, standards that would be interoperable. I think it's a really important point, and it kind of overlaps a bit with a lot of data policy issues more broadly. We're never going to see a singular data protection or data security regime globally, but the work of the APEC data ecosystem, for instance, has all been around ensuring that you can have a greater operability across borders. Uh, it's, It's interesting to see that cited specifically in open banking as well, but it's a common theme. Yes, and it would also be especially beneficial for smaller banks that don't have the resources to develop APIs and invest in technology the way large banks can. And so if there is a standard that is broadly adopted, then they can more easily participate in this new open data ecosystem. You've already alluded a little to the vulnerabilities with security and third parties. Another of the big issues is on the liability for fraud and errors and the mechanisms for making customers whole, where the error might, for instance, be on the part of a a data aggregator or third party, but traditional liability and dispute mechanisms have generally focused on the banks. Your report found that roughly half of the the Bowl Committee jurisdictions have started addressing this issue. Is that right? Yes. So that is being somewhat generous. Half the jurisdictions recognize this is an issue. This is probably the top operational challenge for implementing open banking. When you engage in an open banking activity, what that means is the customer is requesting the bank to share data with a third party, usually to conduct a service. And a service such as a payment transfer, if it were to fail due to an error, it is not always clear whose responsibility it is to make the customer whole. Is it the bank who is responsible or is it the data aggregator who collected the information who's responsible, or was it the fintech service provider who's responsible? And this is an issue that is acknowledged as a very difficult one. It's a very legal question that relies upon the legacy frameworks of each individual jurisdiction. And it is something that needs to be developed over time. One gap in the report, speaking from an industry perspective, is on the asymmetry in data flows or the one-directional nature of data flows and some of the competition implications that can stem from that. 
And I'm thinking here, for instance, where open banking may empower the consumer in that they can tell their bank to share their financial data with a tech firm, but without an equivalent opportunity the other way. So you could have a Google or a Facebook, for instance, able to take together everything they already know about you and put that together with your payments and transactional data, but that nobody else could ever emulate that same opportunity. I understand that was a a deliberate choice in the report scope to focus on getting a baseline on the lay of the land and the immediate issues that banking supervisors can focus on. But if we look ahead to perhaps where future work might be needed, is this an issue that regulators and policymakers see as important? I think it certainly is important for some regulators, but not necessarily for all. So this is probably not an area the Basel Committee will probably delve into, but it is a very interesting question. Many jurisdictions are pushing for an open data ecosystem. And what does open data really mean? And this is actually beyond probably even the interests of the IAF. But you look at India, you look at Australia, there is a recognition of the power data has for an economy. Many people are now calling data the new oil. And how can data be used to create new services and products and also help to expand the economy through the data? If you look at a country such as India, they've decided if the country is able to produce more data and create, therefore, a data-rich environment, then the result will be a new, stronger, more expanded economy that is powered by data. So the question becomes, well, if banks have to share their data, well, customers' data, with third parties, then should third parties have to share their data with banks? So far, open banking frameworks are agnostic on data flow, and I can see banks evolving to becoming fintechs themselves and wanting to be technology firms and wanting to also take advantage of that data because many new products and services that are being developed If you look at them, they are powered by data. And that is where probably the global economy is heading. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But I think it's an interesting point you make that the issue I'm raising here is one that's perhaps broader than BAL and broader than banking. The FSB's recent big tech report, I think quite well picked up this issue of the potential competitive implications. But it also kind of comes back to that matrix we were talking about earlier of the scope of a banking supervisor, the scope of a data or a privacy or a competition commissioner, and how this intersection comes together. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's, it's a new world, and I think everyone's still figuring it out. The FSB, in its analysis of the current global financial system, hasn't come down with any conclusion that fintech is posing some kind of financial stability risk, but they are closely monitoring. However, I pose to you and the listeners, one day we will be an economy driven and powered by data and therefore subject to data runs. What if one day these third parties, data aggregators, even banks who need this data no longer have access to the data they need in order to conduct their activities? You would essentially have a data crisis. And, you know, people often look to central banks like the Fed to provide liquidity support in times of crises. This will be a very different world when we have suddenly a shortage of data. What would this mean for governments in terms of providing stability to the financial and economic system? It's still to be seen. Also, I guess if the data flows and the data storage is held and concentrated around a new group of significant players, you've got a a whole new too big to fail or GCFE framework to think about. Yes. Looking ahead for the Bail Committee, uh, this report is something of a first fintech initiative with further work foreshadowed. 
can you share any insights on what else we might expect from the committee's work going forward? Appreciating, obviously, that you're no longer in the committee, but having previously looked from within, now looking from without, uh, what might we expect? Well, the uh, chair of the Basel Committee recently announced work ahead on fintech issues for the Basel Committee. Firstly, it's going to come out with a paper on crypto exposures. So that will be something we should pay attention to closely. How are banks exposed to crypto assets? Currently, the exposure is pretty low, but that may change over time. And will the committee need to consider risk weights for crypto assets? The other topic that the committee is going to begin a deep dive on after this open banking paper is how are artificial intelligence and machine learning techniques being used in credit underwriting activities? You saw recently the U.S. federal bank supervisors got together and issued a statement saying that cash flow transactional data can be considered in credit underwriting. So there is recognition that you know, AI ML technology could be useful and is being used. But I hope the Basel Committee uh, will not lose this opportunity to do further work on open banking because this is not a one-off topic. This topic is deeply interconnected with financial stability. We are no longer looking at an ecosystem of just banks. We are looking at an ecosystem of banks, data aggregators, and technology firms. And what does this mean for financial stability? Some very basic questions for central banks, for example, would be, what is the tipping point when you have too many deposits in fintech firms rather than in supervised banks. Where is that tipping point for when it's no longer easy for a central bank to maintain control over its monetary system? That is a question that's still unanswered. We're not close to that tipping point yet, but we should figure out what that percentage would be. And then if we ever hit that tipping point, what would that mean? So that's an obvious central bank monetary policy question, not to mention all the issues around how to better improve cybersecurity. And also, what does this mean for API risk management? Banks now need to manage risk posed by not only APIs, but their interaction with these third parties, many of which they don't even have contracts with when there's an absence of contractual relationships, how can they still manage the risk of sharing their customers' data with those firms? There's some big challenges ahead there. I think that's an interesting snapshot in the future of what might be the focus of the Bail Committee. But what about the future for yourself? Moving now beyond your previous career at the Fed and, and this particular Bail work, the fact that you're now at Georgetown, what's new and what's next for you? Yeah, thanks for that question, Brad. Um, as you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, open banking involves many issues that are also outside the traditional bank supervisor remit. So I want to focus my research now on digital privacy, in particular data rights, and on customer liability. There's very little information at this point on how to measure the loss of privacy. We were speaking earlier about the examples of if something were to go wrong in, say, your Venmo transaction to, say, perhaps the wrong amount or to the wrong person, who is responsible? 
it's often very clear how you can measure a direct monetary loss. But what happens if information you had not wanted to be sent to, say, a fourth party, or not just data privacy loss, but incorrect information is sent to firms that you know they're not the traditional credit reporting bureaus anymore, but they are conducting some kind of underwriting approval process for you? That's not a direct monetary loss, perhaps, or maybe that might become a loss later on. But at the moment, how would you measure that loss in not only privacy or the incorrect reporting of your information? You know, these are areas that I want to spend time doing some good, robust research. Excellent. And I think regular listeners will know that I love to plug or cross-reference some of our previous episodes, but you jotted my memory there with the reference to data rights. Back on episode 34, we had Doug Elliott of Oliver Wyman join us, talking about the World Economic Forum paper that he'd led for them. He used the same phrase and he emphasized the same point that it's about data rights where others have been tempted to use the term data ownership. And to take up this point about data as the new oil, one great variance relative to the oil analogy is that it's not always just in one place and it doesn't necessarily just have one singular owner. And we need to think of it in a much more complex way about the fact that there are multiple different rights on a particular piece of data from different parties. It's a great complexity in itself. Yes, it is. Data is even though often called the new oil, it's not like oil. Data can be used more than once. Data can be combined with other kinds of data to form altogether new kinds of data. And so customers, such as under GDPR, are treated as having the right to control and own their data. But what happens when their data is then combined with other types of data? Is it the firm who analyzed and actually created that new kind of data, the new owner of that data? And that data being used by multiple parties once it's out in public for use by multiple parties, is it no longer private? It raises a lot of questions. The economics of data poses a lot of legal issues, not only here in the US, but for all countries involved. Well, Linda, thank you very much. Firstly, we appreciate you joining us today, but we appreciate also the work you've done in leading this very important BCBS report. And I would certainly commend to all of our listeners to read this report. We will also have an IIF comment letter on the report very shortly. I don't think I'm letting the cat out of the bag too much to say that we are very impressed and appreciative of a lot of the analysis in the report. And it's probably that asymmetrical data flow issue and the competition implications that the IIF and a lot of our members will look to build on and take that issue further. We also have a couple of previous IAF papers on open banking available on our website, one on that asymmetry issue, another on, on liability. And if I just highlight a couple of key points that I take away from your, your comments here, Linda, the point you emphasised around the, the difficulties, but also the importance of getting the liability and dispute resolution frameworks right. An enormous challenge coming from a legacy base that has not had to confront these issues before in those frameworks. But you also pick up a number of the themes that I, I think are, are important and common beyond open banking. We talked about interoperability, interoperability across borders, and the fact that we're going to see standards emerge in different places that are not always completely identical, but hopefully ones that can be interoperable across borders. The point you make about the upcoming BAL focus on the use of AI or machine learning, perhaps, in credit underwriting. And it overlaps very heavily there with the work that we've been doing at the IAF on the adoption of machine learning and credit risk. The two reports that we've now published in March 2018 and August 2019, it's a piece that we'll continue to carry on. And you can find a number of previous episodes of FRT where my colleague Natalie Bailey and I have, have discussed those report findings. 
And then also this point about the complexities of data and the complexities of data rights and the multiple uses of data, I think an important theme that will continue to be current for some time. Ahead on FRT, next we're off to Switzerland. We have an IAF board meeting in Zurich and I'll be speaking there with Standard Life Aberdeen Chairman Douglas Flint. Douglas was also the former chair of the IAF when he was also the chair of HSBC. And continuing that Swiss trip, we'll also bring some top takeaways from the World Economic Forum in Davos. I'm Brad Carr. Thanks for joining us on FRT.